Welcome to In the Woods. I'm James Woods, aka William Moore, the author of Sparrows Valley and the Twisted Fairy Tale series, and co-founder of Majavi. If you need to get out of your own way and learn how to traverse the not-so-happy path in your career, I want to help you dig through the weeds and get to the roots of what may be holding you back from growing and succeeding in your industry. The mindset when you have to overcome when things don't go your way. So join me in the woods. Welcome to In the Woods. I'm James Woods, uh, also known as William Moore, the author of Sparrows Valley and the Twisted Fairy Tale series, and co-founder of Majave. Uh, if you need to get out of your own way and learn how to traverse the not-so-happy path in your career, join me in the woods. So today I have a very special guest, a good friend of mine, uh, Chesney Snow. We go back a um, decade or two. I uh, hate to say two decades because it's starting to show my age, but that's fine. But um, just to give a little bit of information about Chesney, Chesney's been uh, in, he was in In Transit, just make sure that I'm actually saying this correctly. Yeah. Uh, you, it was the first 100% acapella musical on Broadway? Yep, all from The Voice. It was the first, uh, first acapella musical uh, to ever go to Broadway. Yep, and I was proud of that show. Yeah, and you're also uh, you're a three-time artist in residence over at Harvard University. Uh, you actually created and executive produced the American Beatboxing Championships, and you actually had a feature documentary, uh, which is now in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, it's been in, it's in the Harvard University Hip Hop Archive. Uh, it was on the Revolt with uh, Sean P Diddy Combs of uh, Time Warner on TV. So I mean, you've shared stages with a lot of well-known names from Snoop Dogg to KRS-One to Kaya over in uh, overseas. So you 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 have a very Thanks, deep man. Uh, and very reputable past. Um, so let me ask you this: in in all these years that you've been, you know, doing these shows, uh, you've done Carnegie Hall, you've uh, you've taught classes at Rikers Island. I mean, you've you've work with a lot of well-known names in the industry. When you first started and in, embarked in, in this, this is what I'm going to do? Or was this something that you kind of winged and it just kind of happened this way? Um, you know, I, I would say that it, it was, uh, you know, probably a, a, a little bit of a mixture of both, right? Like I didn't, you know, like I, I knew at some point, you know, growing up, um, you know, I would say when I was around in high school that I wanted to be an actor, right? Um, that I wanted to be in the theater. Um, beatboxing was something that really happened, you know, I wouldn't say like by accident because I was, I was beatboxing, you know, on playgrounds. I was always beatboxing, you know, ever since I heard probably the Fat Boys, you know. Um, and, and Dougie Fresh and, 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 you know, the old school hip hop, um, you know, from the eighties. But it, when I got to New York, you know, and I, and I wanted to, uh, be an actor, I realized that everybody else had also moved to New York city to be an actor. Uh, so the, 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 the competition, it wasn't even just so much competition, but the, it was just like it's always a flooded market. So, you know, I, I wanted to have something of me that I did that kind of set me, you know, set me apart or, or, or opened up something new for me. 
And so I would start uh, beatboxing in my spoken word poems and stuff. So I would I would spit poems and I would have beatboxing, you know, and and I would bring that that form of of my art to the stage, um, and that opened me up to a you know a community of of, of online beatboxers, you know, like so before um, you know before YouTube and all of that, you know, before Facebook, uh, most people um, had there were chat rooms, there were like boards and. Uh, kind of like forums that people would go to. If anybody remembers those, um, you know, there there were if there was something you were interested in, you would go onto a forum, right? Uh, and so there was a, a beatboxing forum uh, called beatboxing.com and then humanbeatbox.com. And so that would be a place where beatboxers from all over the world were starting to connect and like share MP3 files and, you know, you get to share video files. And so, um, you know, I, I was kind of like listening to all these various beatboxes around the world. I was like, Oh, I'm pretty good. You know, I, I like, I, I got something here. So, uh, so I just started to hone my beatboxing because, um, I think it was just like acting, you know, at some point, you know, just kind of felt, um, really, um, not impossible, but it just kind of felt like you had to do a lot of what you didn't necessarily want to do or be passionate about, right? So, you know, if 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 you wanted to make it as an actor, then essentially, you know, you had to, um, I mean, unless you, you know, went to Juilliard or, 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 or some of these, you know, really, you know, uh, expensive, uh, you know, schools or, or, or exclusive schools, um, you know, you had to work your way up in doing commercials and stuff like that. And so, you know, I would go through these commercial audition processes and, you know, you get the rejection wasn't really the issue that I had, right? Because you're, it's, 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 you're, it's drilled into your head that if you want to be an actor, uh, you've got to prepare yourself for rejection, right? Because, Everybody ain't gonna like you, you know, um, or or you're not gonna be right, <laughs> right. for a, a particular part, right? Um, but my problem, you know, my disconnect really started to come from a McDonald's audition, actually, where the the guy was like, um, the casting director was like, oh, you know, you know, that's great, that's great, you know, but I, I need you to make the McChicken sexy, you know, the McChicken is sexy, it's sexy, the McChicken. You got to make the McChicken sexy. <laughs> and so I was basically just like, oh, well, yeah, I definitely understand what you're saying. But like, I don't freaking eat McChickens. You know, I don't I don't I don't want other people to eat McChickens, <laughs> you know, and I'm thinking, like, what am I doing here? You know, so I you know, it was the first time in my life where acting felt like something I didn't love, you know. And uh, so, so what was it? Any acting? I, I know you said you did the interviews. You were, you know, you're doing the stuff with the beatbox. And where was the point where you kind of came back to it? I know you said so, you did the beatbox, and right. but eventually that's down a funny the, story. The road, that's a fun, mean, that's that's a funny story. Because you've created the choreo, uh, the choreo poem that that's you know been in Dixon Place, and like, how did you get back yeah, into so, it? So that that's a funny story. Um, so I. 
I essentially uh, went to go. It was my, I want to say my 30s. It was, it was one of my birthdays. <laughs> it was one of my uh, birthdays. And, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm getting to this age where it was like, I'm looking 10 years down the road, you know, or trying to envision 10 years from now and be like, you know, damn, like what, you know, what am I doing uh, with my career? Am, am I, am I, am I going to be able to, um, to make something? Because yeah, you know, I was, I, I was, you know, I was getting by doing what I was doing, meaning that like I was beatboxing, you know, I was doing some teaching artistry here and there. Um, you know, I, I was, I was surviving, you know, um, but I really wasn't, I really wasn't happy, you know, like I, but I was living as an artist, you know, and I, I had um, a show uh, at this club in Brooklyn. It's not even there anymore. Um, yeah, I'm that guy now. That's what we, <laughs> we're at that age where we were like, this is back in the day, there was this club, right? Uh, but yeah, there was a club called, <laughs> called Southpaw. Uh, in Brooklyn, and uh, and I was I would rock with this uh, rapper named Eternia, um, and so we would we would kind of like ah, yes. do some some shows and stuff uh, around. We would tour and stuff, and so we were opening for for KRS One, and so we 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 had the show. We opened for KRS One. We killed the stage. We rocked it, and then it was my you know it was my that was my birthday night. But before I went on to that, um, before I went out to go to that show, you know, it was my birthday night, I was looking up at the moon. And typically, the, there's, the moon is somehow connected to these major points in my life, where it's like I always look at the moon and, and I ask this question, right? And I, I, asked, uh, I asked a question uh, does does the stage love me? You know, does the theater love me? Because I love the theater, and and um, and so I I went to, uh, you know, I went to go do that show. We did the show, and then uh, you know I'm throwing back drinks and celebrating my birthday, and then all of a sudden uh, somebody grabs my arm and starts dragging me across the uh, the club the floor. Um, and, and is is dragging me backstage and then throws me up on stage with KRS because I guess he had asked, uh, for me to, he had, he had called me to the stage and I was like, you know, oh shit, you know, I'm not like, I, I'm, you know, they give me a microphone and next thing you know, I'm rocking with KRS one, you know? Um, and so that was the first answer to that question that night. And so then it was like the next day or like two days later, I get a call from um, a friend of mine. Her name's Michelle. Uh, Michelle, uh, they called her Sauce, uh, Sis on String. She was uh, a violinist for yes, uh, yes, yes. a group called Misnomers uh, with Noodles, who was the MC. They were like sisters and brilliant, uh, amazing uh, artists. And, and she was a violinist who played for like, a lot of big stars um 
And she will anyway, so she gives me a call and she's like, um, you know, I have this audition um, at the uh, this, this SGI center um, in, in, which is a, it's like a Buddhist center in um, uh, Union Square uh, in New York City. And, uh, and she, she, uh, she says, you should go audition for it. So I was like, wow, you know, like I, I, I wanted to get back into theater. You know, I wanted to get back to the stage, right? That was the question I asked for my birthday. So I go and uh, I go to audition. So I, I go into the audition room and I'm easily 10 years older than all of these uh, uh, recent college grads from NYU. And they're like warming up and doing their dance steps. And I'm just like, oh, shit, I'm out of place, man. I'm not supposed to be here, but I, I stay. And then I, 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 we did the dance part of the audition. I just kind of quit in the middle of it. I was just like, I, I think there's a terrible mistake. Uh, you know, I am not a dancer. I don't, I don't do, I, I don't do this. So I was walking out, and they said, "Oh no, no, please don't, don't, don't leave yet. Just stay till the uh, till the uh, the acting part, to the to the monologue part." So I was like, all right. So, um, you know, they asked me if, uh, if I had anything. I said, I could spit some spoken word. So I spit some spoken word and they're like, uh, you know, great. So I, so I get home um, and I get a call and they say, listen, we loved you. Uh, you are uh, really incredible. Uh, but unfortunately, we just don't have a part for you. And so I was like, okay, cool. Um, thank you very much. So then I get a call the next morning where she says, hey, uh, we actually, we really like you. So we're going to make a part for you in the show. Right? And so they make a part for me in the show. And um, I start to do the this this tour uh this little mini tour about um conflict resolution so it was like a an original play uh with a lot of young kids now who are actually on or who have basically done broadway or are on broadway you know some really really great talent and that show happened to be produced by um herbie hancock um uh, I'm just, I'm assuming that people are familiar with, with Herbie Hancock. Um, and my last day of, uh, of that show, I was, I was on my way home and I was on the subway and the subway kind of came above ground and then my phone started ringing. And when my phone was ringing, uh, oh, well, that phone call was from one of the writers of In Transit asking if I was available uh, to do a, a reading of the piece for some producers who, were, who wanted to take the show off Broadway at a theater called Primary Stages. So um, my coming back to the theater was really, um, was really about, was really guided by 
you know, wanting to just be back onto the stage because, you know, the beauty of, of pulling myself away from the commercial aspects of, of acting at that, mo- at that time in my life was that I was able to do like staged readings. I was able to do things that reinforced my love for the work. But it, you know, at that point, it began to feel more like a hobby than uh, a crafted profession, you know. And when I got back to the theater uh, with In Transit and, uh, you know, subsequent shows that I, that I worked on, I was really kind of uh, catapulted back into uh, being on stage, not just as a beatboxer, uh, but a storyteller. So in, in a roundabout way, it's like you were you were performing with your friend Eternia. Um, you got pulled on the stage with the KRS-One and kind of it, it was almost random where people were kind of calling you. It's almost like the world or the universe wanted to pull you back into Yeah, and it was. So you yeah. didn't even try out for the in transit. Oh, like no, 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 no. I had to. I had to. I had to. Well, no. Well, you know, no, you, you it's a business. So you have to audition for it. Uh, so I had to prepare for it. So so even though they called me, what they called me for was called a backers audition, right? And so in a backers audition, that's basically where you are uh, presenting the show in a re- uh, reading format, like a staged reading, a performance format, where you are able to um, showcase the piece for producers, right? Um for people who, who are either producers or they want, they want to invest in the show. Right. After that, okay. after that, I then had to go and audition for the actual, you know, production. So each time, you know, you, you know, you still have to audition for it. Um, even when we had workshopped the play for years, even when we got, went to Broadway, we still had to uh, audition for it, you know, because the, some things changed, the director changed. And so we had to, you know, everyone had to audition for it again. So it's, it's, it's never easy. It's never given to you. The only time you don't have to really audition for it is probably when you are writing it yourself, you know, and, and, and you're creating it yourself. Like I didn't have to audition for American beatboxer, you know, because American beatboxer, I, Right, because it was yours. It was mine, you know. So let me ask you this. In all the stuff that you have done, what advice would you give someone? Because you've hit hit some very, you know, some highs. You've hit some lows. Um, What advice would you give someone who's looking to pursue a career that's similar to yours? Rather be just being on stage, rather be acting, rather be beatboxing. Because everyone's going to hit that, that, that struggle or that, those moments where you kind of look into the sky and you have to be real with yourself and ask yourself, can I do this? Do I want to do this? Or should I stop and try to figure something else out? You know? Yeah. You know, I, I think, you know, when I asked that question, does the stage love me? You know, the answer that I got, uh, like I told you was how it began to, you know, things kind of began to open up. Um, you know, opportunities began to open up and, you know, yeah, sometimes it feels, you know, it can really feel like, 
you know, in this career that that um, that you're not loved, that you're not cared for, but you definitely are. And that was, I think, the answer to the um, the question that I had, because that year, you know, I got my off Broadway debut. Right. Uh, again, does the theater love me? Gate got my off Broadway debut, won the Drama Desk Award, got pulled up on stage with KRS got to be in a show produced by Herbie Hancock, you know, one of the, one of the great, uh, greatest American jazz musicians uh, ever, you know? Um, and, you know, so the answer was probably less so did the, uh, does the stage love you, but does the universe love you? Yes. So, you know, to answer that question, you know, I would say you, you have to understand that things in the business are always going to ebb and flow. There are going to be ups and there are going to be downs. It's the, it's the long haul, right. Um, that you have to, you know, you just, you keep going and you keep going and you keep going and, and you, you have to, you know, measure like what, you know, what is success for you? I think, you know, I think a lot of people are like, oh, you know, well, success is if I'm a millionaire, you know. Um, well, you know, a millionaire in New York really isn't anything, you know. I mean, you can have a, a one or two bedroom apartment in New York and that's a millionaire, you know. Um, so, you know, the, the, <laughs> the, the, the thing is, you know, if your craft is able to support the things that you want in life, you know, I think that's a measure of success. And what I mean by that are, you know, uh, family, you know, leisure, you know, being able to actually um, enjoy your life, you know, um, instead of instead of just focusing all the time on work, I think is really critical because if you're if you're not taking in life, then uh, it's going to be hard to, I think, have a reservoir of expression, a reservoir of experience um, that you can use to to fuel whatever craft you're doing. So I think the other thing is um, be sure to to focus on understanding that like your your greatest successes are probably going to come from what you give to other people and how you lift other people, right? So that it's not necessarily just about, you know, oh, you know, look at me, I can spit these beats and I can do this on stage and, and look at how great I am, right? But it's, are you, mm -hmm. are you building something for someone else that can serve someone else, right? So to, you know, to give an example, yeah, I was, you know, before I founded the American beatbox championships, you know, I was, I was, uh, you know, I was working as a beatboxer. I was making, I was doing shows overseas. I was, I was writing an album. I was, I was making stuff happen. But when I founded that event, you know, the reason that I founded that event was to help the next generation of beatboxers. So the next generation of beatboxers here in America had uh, a platform that could lift them 
to a professional lens, right? That could lift, that could, that could show them as young, you know, a lot of these guys were like 18, 19, that could show them, you know, at that time, you know, how do they use YouTube as a social media uh, tool? How do they use, uh, uh, how do they market themselves? How do they uh, make sure that their work is, is, uh, is versatile, right? So that it's not just about, hey, look, I can do this beat, but like I can rock with the acapella group. I can do X, Y, or Z, right? So, you know, there were the, the, the crafting of what I put into the American Beatboxing Championships was about helping other people. Some of those people have gone on to become millionaires. You know, some of those people, you know, beatboxing, some of those people, right. you know, are, are, are now, you know, doing amazing things in the art form and, and, and really do have solid careers. And, and that, that is a measure of success that, that uh, um, I think is really invaluable. You know, because then you you start to look at like like what is your legacy? You know, is is your your legacy is 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 what have you done for for the people? What have you done for your community? You know, so if you want to really have a great career, you know, I think that you know at least in the performance in the arts, or at least have a a, a space where you know you're really respected. You know, so that when things do get hard, you know, uh, there is a community there to catch you. Um, there is a community there to lift you that you'll be able to constantly work, you know, like so even during the pandemic, you know, um, you know, yeah, it was difficult for a lot of us artists, but we were, you know, a lot of us were still able to find spaces, you know, through the online space because of the networks that we have built, because of the track records that we have already built in the real world. So, you know, um, I think it's really about what you are doing for people, what you are doing for your community. If it's, if it becomes, if you take your way, if you take your mind out of, you know, Oh, I've got to, get more Instagram followers and blah, blah, blah. You know, like it's great to have Instagram followers and that's, and that's wonderful, you know, but my experience is like, you know, that's always going to shift and change, right? It'll be MySpace one day. It'll be Facebook the next day. It'll be Instagram one day. And then one day it'll just be TikTok or, or, or something or something new. You know what I mean? There's like like technology from what I could see always tends to evolve, right? And so and so the you know the but you know if you're if all of your worth is then put into those systems, right? You know then if those systems fall, right? Then your worth falls, right? Right? So if so for example if YouTube all of a sudden decides hey we don't like what you're doing, right? And they cut your channel off. You just cut off all of your income, right? So, so you know, so if 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 you are creating um, something that you're giving to the community in the in the real world, and, and you're making those relationships, that will help solidify, you know, your your career. You know, if you're creating something, if you're creating, you know, it's like Bobby McFerrin. You know, Bobby McFerrin's song, Don't Worry, Be Happy, 
is like is like a gift to the world that is is as fresh today right as it was in the 80s right like like so and that song is going to live right. on that song's going to live on that song is going to be something that is going to make somebody feel good 50 years from now right you know which at that point would you know the song's probably 30 30 years old or so at this point by now so it's like you know you look at how your work is healing to other people. And that I think is the testament of like, of advice that I would, I would give, you know, to people, to young artists. That, that actually correlates in a lot of different ways. Uh, not just in your industry, I know in mine and uh, literary also in tech and just a lot of my friends in a lot of different industries and in marketing where building a network, in my opinion, is, is one of the advice that I kind of, that, Everyone that I speak to always says the same thing, like from the tech world. Um, a lot of the jobs that I receive were because of people that I worked with before, people that I had mentored before, uh, someone heard about me from someone else uh, in the literary world. It was, you know, word of mouth or, you know, if I there was a time where I struggled financially or I needed something that someone who would call me out of nowhere to ask me for work. It seems like that that's kind of like a, a common theme across the board where it, it's, you can't make it on your own. I mean, you can try to build it as much as you want, but in the long term, it seems like when you build something uh, that, that goes beyond yourself or you're creating something or helping other people, it just always tends to, to come back to you. So I know you, you, you say that it, it's about the networking and the building relationships. But from like a personal level, I, I, I know you, you were doing the beatboxing. Uh, I know personally you, you did the, the street performing. You did the, uh, you know, you've done as big as Carnegie Hall and Broadway. What were some of the resources uh, that you were using along the way to help you build the skill set that you need? Because I know, I don't know, you know, that much about because in beatboxing, I don't know if you're really like from for me, I have to read articles and watch videos and, you know, read tons of books. But when you're talking about uh, acting, it's more of a, a do type of thing. So what were some of your resources to kind of help you along the way? You know, I think that, you know, it's so there there's two. There are a few things. One, I think with any craft you know, you have to study, you know, you have to study it, you know, and you, you have to, um, you know, with the craft of acting, you know, you know, you're talking about a craft that's thousands of years deep at this point, you know, um, the serious, uh, uh, you know, so, so you're looking at, you know, the Greek dramas, Shakespeare, you know, uh, various countries, you know, uh, you know, are going to have their drama, their playwrights, you know, uh, Russia was really, I think, uh, renowned at this point, you know, from the works that came from Stanislavski and from, uh, uh, Chekhov. So you need, you need to be as an actor, you know, 
rooted, I think, not just in the Western tradition of storytelling, but to examine all uh, of the world's, you know, traditions of of storytelling because it's so ancient. So I think that, um, you know, having that that uh, that depth of knowledge uh, certainly uh, is certainly necessary. Uh, you know, I think that you, you know, if you really want to be a serious actor, you need to know what's been done before, you know, so you need to study these movies, you know, uh, so, so that I'm not like, oh, I saw that movie, but oh, I studied that movie. You know, that's that's going to make the difference between, you know, Quentin Tarantino, you know, and and, uh, you know, just somebody who really likes to watch a movie. Um, you know, I think in terms of beatboxing, you know, um, you know, beatboxing is an interesting thing because uh, it was a it was a it was an art form that was originally about your unique voice, you know, um, and it wasn't codified, you know, it wasn't really something that was codified, it, you know, w- when it started out, right. It was just raw. It was just like, like, you know, someone scatting. It's just like, that's their voice. Right. Um, and then over time, uh, I think with any fine art, um, as the as the art form spreads and the culture spreads you know it starts it starts to become codified um and so you know people begin to uh emulate each other right and study each other um and i think you know i think there's some real benefits to that you know uh you know, because I, I feel like it allows for the art to grow in a sense, you know, because it's not because everyone is sort of studying each other. But then at the same time, you know, there's like there's something that you lose in a sense, you know, um, because uh, typically uh, when art forms, you know, I think particularly from, uh, well, from what I understand or, or, or you know, re- research and what I've seen, you know, you know, a lot of the arts that, a lot of the arts and crafts that come from the African-American traditions, uh, you know, are typically, you know, when they reach popular culture, um, you know, they begin to become codified and a lot of the people who um, who really pioneered those arts are are forgotten, right? Um, and they're they're um, you know there's you know it's usually kind of placed into this, this space where it's like, uh, well, this is you know uh, you know I, the, the the best example that I could make of this is like. If anyone's from the 90s, they would remember Boys to Men. And Boys to Men was like one of the biggest, you know, uh, boy band groups that had ever existed. I mean, they were huge. I mean, when they came out into the scene, they were massive, you know. And then uh, New Kids, not New Kids, but uh, 
98 Degrees and NSYNC and and I think uh, the Backstreet Boys came out and and they basically took you know the this the kind of style of of boys to men right but they were white so they appealed to the mass audience right in a way that marketed them and and they were marketed in such a way where they were more uh, acceptable i guess to the popular culture right so it 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 was like kind of erasing blackness in a sense I think you find that um, in beatboxing, uh, you know, the, the, the styles, you know, for example, there are, you know, there, there are people as, you know, as beatboxing spread, you know, it was like there was this kind of disassociation with hip hop. You know, there are a lot of beatboxers who was like, oh, you know, this is not hip hop, even though the style of dress they're wearing is hip hop. The, the 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 monikers of the names is hip hop, right? Like like it's a part of the hip hop culture, right? But the you know at that moment the gatekeepers were were like you know no this is ours. So as like, I'll give you an example, um, and this is something that we've talked about inside the beatboxing community before. But you know the World Beatboxing Championships, which which was uh, created in uh, Berlin. Uh, in Germany, right? Um, you know, the logo for the World Beatboxing Championships for years was the continent of Europe. So now think about that. You know, the art form that started in New York City, right, in the Bronx, with, 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 with uh, you know, black and, lat- and Latino people, right, Latinx people, like, like, is the the logo of that of that art form is is eurocentric you know and 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 even within the culture you know you know i would start to see um the you know i would start to see how difficult it was for you know black and brown kids you know here in the united states to, you know, if they weren't in New York City, uh, you know, to participate, you know, uh, to participate in it because they did not necess- they didn't necessarily have the resources to travel to New York City and compete in the American Beatbox Championships, right? Like that was a hard thing because of because of the economic situation that you know, uh, you know, black people uh, and brown people find themselves here in the United States. Very different, and the the. There's a big difference in Europe with how arts are supported, right? So, you know, arts are, are, you know, there's a arts here and the support for arts here, vastly different. You know, if you're if you're an artist in Germany, you don't have to worry about your health care. Your health care is taken care of. If you get sick, you're going to be all right. You know, if if you're an artist here, right, and you get you get sick, it's a very hard road, you know, like uh, I, you know, God bless, you know, uh, a friend, a uh, colleague of mine, Kid Lucky, you know, um, Kid Lucky's a, a, a friend of mine who, who uh, is a beatboxer, uh, you know, really a pioneering figure in terms of like bringing beatboxers together, you know, um, you know, he was one of the first people to like 
you know, really create a business, you know, that was about elevate like about elevating beatboxers, right? Um, and he got sick. Would you consider him one of the? Would you consider him one of the uh, more influential people? Or I, I, I know you, you're speaking about the uh, the different the differences and the uh, the different resources uh, depending on where you are in location. Yeah. Does do those influence actually uh, assist you? Outside of the resources, do those people or those influence help you and yeah, improving or? Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. I mean, for me, like I, when I first started, you know, I couldn't afford uh, uh, a, a DAW. I couldn't afford a digital works, audio workstation. You know, I didn't have a Mac. You know, so I, I didn't even have GarageBand. So what I had to, I had to hack that shit. I had to get that. I had to find, I had to get LimeWire and find a cracked version or find a way that I could create a key generator code, right? A key generator in order to get the software so that I could learn how to actually record myself because, because there's no way, you know, I would have ever been able to have afforded that, you know? And, and, you know, I, um, you know, I had to learn, I, you know, I, you, you had to learn to get microphones. Eventually, you you get to a place where you're able to reinvest in yourself, right? So once you can get to the point, to a level where, okay, so I've, I've got my little home studio set up, right? I've got the microphones I need. I've got the speakers I need. I can go out there. I can rock this, right? Um, right. You, you know, the resources are... You know, you definitely need equipment. You know, you need to learn about microphones. You need to learn about audio. You need to learn about sound. You gotta, you know, if you want to understand how to create an album, you know, it probably helps to understand how that album is mixed. You know, like what is the what is the process of like, you know, recording that album? Not to say that you're gonna mix and master it, but understand what it is that that you want and what it's your, what you're looking for, you know? Um, so I think the other thing, uh, the other really valuable resource again is, uh, is people, you know, I mean, uh, kid lucky was someone who I think, you know, if you were coming to New York city as a beatboxer, you know, he, he, he was, you know, he was basically a guy that was like putting together a crew of beatboxers, you know, and and he was someone who was basically like a, a, a almost an evangelist for beatboxing, you know. And so uh, the period of time I kind of became his right hand man, you know what I mean. And uh, and we, you know, we all did clubs and you know like CBGBs and the Bowery Poetry Club and the New Eureka Poetry Cafe and all these, you know, all these little spots, yes. you know, in New York City. Um, and then. You know, so I think the resources were there for a kind of un, like the, an underground, really kind of downtown New York City arts scene. You know, you know, the, the, the underground hip hop space, you know, is like that's places where that those were the spaces where you would see somebody like a Lin-Manuel or, or um, a, a an immortal technique, you know. Uh, Hassan Salam, 
you know, uh, rising through, you know, the whole, uh, uh, the whole industry, the whole scene. So I would think that those now are you, the resources. Now you're saying there was a, um, now you were saying people is a very big resources where they're like, say two or three people who would you say were like your biggest resource or your, who were truly influential to you? I mean, sometimes they might be people you know of, or they might be people that you know personally. Yeah, I mean, I, who are I, some I was, of like the more influential people for you personally? I mean, I think uh, the first, first and foremost, I, I would say that uh, Magdalena Dombrowska Kaya was probably the the biggest uh, uh, because you know she, uh, you know, we were together at the time. You know, we're we're friends now, but uh, you know, she was you know, like the person who was like ride or die, always there, you know, um, almost at every show, you know, uh, when I was producing the American beatbox championships, like, like she's, she was by my side doing all of that. You know, if I, if things rose or fell, you know, so she was really my partner in, in, in almost all aspects of my career. And I don't think that I would have been able to have um, to have achieved what I what I have been able to achieve without without her. There's there's no question about that. Um, I would say that you have definitely also been a, an amazing uh, and, and and real uh, uh, influence because you you've been there for me when the chips were down. You've been there for me when the chips were high. You know, uh, you know you've been someone that's always been there for me. Um, and I think, you know, you know, outside, 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 well, no, I appreciate you, brother. I appreciate you. Um, I think that, you know, there's, you know, there's a, there are a lot of, you know, uh, people that I could say in terms of just like the career, um, have really, been uh, uh, key in terms of like the craft, uh, giving me opportunities, you know, um, you know, lately a brilliant brother named Ruben Santiago Hudson, uh, who's a a brilliant uh, actor, director, uh, has really um, been instrumental in, 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 in guiding me, like his craft, like, how he directs, you know, uh, you know, how he creates a story on stage uh, has just really been uh, breathtaking to watch. And he's been really uh, supportive and, and, and helping guide me. Um, uh, another uh, brilliant sister named Regina Taylor um, has also uh, yes. been quite, uh, 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 you know, a, a mentor um, of, really understanding how to pen, you know, how, how to put the pen to the, to the page on, on stage. Um, and, and has also, uh, you know, really been there for me. Um, and, you know, I would say, you know, I've had, I've, I've just been very fortunate in that sense to have people that, um, you know, have, have really cared about 
uh, about what I'm doing and, and have been there for me when, when the chips get down. And, you know, sometimes the chips would get, get really, get really down, you know? Uh, but yeah, I, I could just go down a whole list of, of people, you know, over the years who really, um, who really, uh, inspired and, and helped me, uh, Richard Bright would be another uh, name, you know, because when I came to New York, uh, um, you know, I had probably maybe a thousand dollars in my pocket, um, you know, it's 2002. Uh, I had took a Greyhound bus from Arizona to, to New York. Uh, and I arrived in New York, um, like at midnight, uh, went to Astoria, went to a little bodega, uh, got robbed at gunpoint, uh, within about two hours of being here. And I was like, Oh, well, I'm a New Yorker now. Uh, and so then the next day, uh, I went out looking for an apartment. You mean in a culture shock? Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it's not the first time I had a gun put in my face, but it was just like, does it have to be two hours after I get to the new city? You know, because I had never been to New York before. <laughs> so, right. so I um, I had a, a real, I had a real mentor in Richard Bright, uh, because you know he rented me the first apartment with, uh, um, oh okay, uh, oh okay, you know I with uh, uh, someone I was dating at the time uh, named Sakie, uh, who was a brilliant uh, uh, makeup artist um, who was attending Juilliard uh, for makeup. She was doing Juilliard uh, for wigs and makeup, and then. He he got me my first auditions, you know, like Richard Bright got me my first auditions um, off off Broadway uh, with a, a group of actors, uh, Maureen Van Zant and uh, 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 Vincent Pastore uh, from The Sopranos, uh, along with Robert Fignaro. Uh, th- those are all actors who were on a show called The Sopranos, uh, HBO. I'm sure people know it. Um, Absolutely. and so they, they got me, yeah, they were my f- first auditions and Richard was like my mentor through really the first, I would say five, five plus years, uh, of living in New York. Um, you know, he would be the guy I would call. Now you have, you have a very, you have a very decorated, um, career highs, lows, the whole nine from your experiences. Are there any like common myths about your professional career or your field that you ever want to just be like, you know what, that's not the way it is that you want to like debunk. Hmm. You know, I, I, I guess I wish, I wish that they would kind of kill the, the idea of this, of the starving artist thing, you know, because I think it kind of becomes a self, a self, you know, almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Is that you think that you have to go out and do all of these things for free and that essentially saying that your work isn't valuable when in actuality it is valuable. Like your work, you know, like your work is a part of you. Yes. You are valuable at all times, you know? So I, I would say that, that I think that, that that would be a uh, 
a good, a good, you know, a good work, a good way to, a good myth to break. You know, and I also feel like, you know, the, you know, this, the, the idea of the, you know, it's, uh, you know, like, you know, you, you, you wait for your, for your break, you know, and it's, you know, and there's, uh, you know, you're going to get lucky. You're going to get lucky. Just, just keep, I, I, I've not found any luck anywhere. Um, you know, I, I, I do see a lot of like grinding and persistence and years, uh, of putting into something, right. To actually forge your way. You know, I, I don't, I don't, I think that the paradigm has shifted a bit, you know, um, in that I don't think that it's going to be something where like, Oh, somebody discovers you, you know? Um, and, and you, and you're gonna, you know, the agent's going to take you on, you know, I, I think it's years of putting in your grind, you know what I mean? And then, you know, the, 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 you, you kind of, force and forge your path through it you know um i don't i don't don't think it has anything to do uh with luck you know it has to do with you being persistently going at something you know until you're basically chipping down a wall i always tell people that there's no such thing as an overnight success it's over many nights success it's definitely a journey. There's no, there's, there's no one that's going to any, I don't care what industry you're in. If you ever see someone who's made it, yeah, there is a huge history of past of work that they have done. Oh, absolutely. Before anyone knows about them. Absolutely. The, the, like now, it took 10 oh, years, ahead. you know, you gotta think it was 10 years before I got in transit. I had been in New York for 10 years right. before, you know, I, the, until the, the right role came along, you know, and I was prepared to take it, you know? So the thing is, is you, you know, for me, it, it's like, I, if there's really something that you want, and this was the way that the in transit audition was for me, is that, I wasn't going to lose that audition. I, I I went in there with the mindset, I will not lose this audition. I will prepare for this audition like I've prepared for nothing else before. Right? I will not lose. Right? You know, and so and so I I you know I think I prepared that off-Broadway audition. I was preparing like eight hours a day for a week straight, just doing nothing but that, but preparing for that. Nothing, just that's all I focused on. So by the time that audition came up, you know, I was like, there's no way that I'm, I'm going to lose this, you know, and I got it, you know, and then, and then when, yeah, and then, and then when I got it, I knew that it was my shot, right? So getting it is just the, the, the beginning part, right? Because then you've got to make it happen, right? So, so, so then I'm the first person in the rehearsal studio, 
right? I'm there before the stage manager is there, right? That led to me getting, you know, having a, uh, a you know, a, an awesome relationship with the producer, you know, in transit because she would always be first, you know. But I, I'm, I would be, I would usually be the first person in that rehearsal studio warming up, and I'd be the last person to leave, right? So, so it, it's it's the it's the um, knowing as I'm going through that process when I was off Broadway, which was back in 2010, I knew I wasn't going to lose that. And I knew what the stakes were. So for me, that was more, almost more important than the, than the Broadway version for me. Right. Because the Broadway version was like, we're, we're getting there, we're getting there, we're getting there, we're getting there, you know, I think I kind of felt that by the time we got to the Broadway version, it had become so big, right, that that there was, you know, there was very little that I could do, you know, or felt that I could do. You know, I could do my part, right? But off Broadway, it was just like that was my shot. Like I had to snatch the attention. Right. You know, by the time we got to Broadway, you know, it was it was it was more difficult because, you know, it took six years for Entrance. It took six seven years from off Broadway. It was like 2010. We were on Broadway at the end of 2016. Wait, so it was ten years to get in Entrance, and then another six before it was on Broadway. Right. So, so the, so the, so the writers who oh, wow. originally so, wrote in tra- like in transit was like 20 years old by the time it hit Broadway. Right. It, it, because the writers had been working on that show, um, a long time ago in this thing called the BMI musical theater, uh, workshop, which is a, a workshop for musical theater creators, uh, based here, uh, in New York city, right. Where like some of the brilliant minds in musical theater are like training. Right. Um, and the, you know, that, that group met there. Right. So Kristen Anderson Lopez, Sarah Wordsworth, um, James Allen Ford and Russ Kaplan, they were the writers of that. Now, Kristen would go on to write Frozen, right, with her husband. Um, and then, and the, you know, and, and like her, they all, all those guys met in the BMI workshop. And that's where In Transit was created. So fast forward 10 years later, you know, that's when they, it took them 10 years to get that show off Broadway, basically, you know. It, it took 10 years before I I'd, I'd even knew about that show. So it wasn't until the worlds collided, right? So it was like I was beatboxing and beatboxing was something I did, but I was also an actor, right? And for many, many years, those worlds never really truly collided, right? And it wasn't until in transit that those worlds came to cross paths. And then, I, you know, that was the opportunity and then I was ready. Right, exactly. So let me ask you if if you and I could switch places right now and one of two ways this can go, what would you ask me or what would you have wanted me to ask you? You know, I, I think this is one of the best 
uh, one of the best interviews that I've, uh, you know, had, man. So, you know, I, I don't know that I could, I could ask, I, I could, I could ask for you to ask for anything more. I think it was really, uh, it was really well thought out interview. Um, you know, if, if I could get something through, if I could ask you a question. Um, if you were the interviewer and you could ask any question, would you ask, you could ask me something or is there a question that I missed that you would have wanted you know, I, to ask I, yourself? I, you know, Either I, one. I, I, I don't think you've missed anything. I mean, I think, you know, if I could ask a question, it would be, you know, if I could ask a question to you, you know, what, when did you realize, like, how long did it take you to realize that money, you know, was, was not going to make it better right right like like it, it, it'll make it better in terms of like yeah you won't be you know living in poverty right but that 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 money money wasn't gonna be the answer to a lot of what we think it's going to be did you ever have that that when i when i first came to new york yes when i first came to new york uh came from georgia tech some people know the story, but it was a long story how I got to New York. Coming to New York, the first five or six years, I had, I actually wrote it down somewhere. I went through about 24 different jobs. Everything, door-to-door sales, car sales, car parts, 411, data entry, sign shop, construction, uh, I worked in King Cullen Deli retail. I remember. I, I did everything. Yeah. And in all those jobs, each job I made a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, to a point where I was comfortable. And then you know I'd get a different place. I get another car. I would get certain things that made my life more comfortable. But as I made more money. I would come up with new expenses or new bills or so it came to the point where it was like, okay, the more I make, I'm in the exact same position. So maybe I should start not so much focusing on what I have, but start focusing on the things that I actually make me happy and what I want to do. Because I started to realize that money was always going to come. There was, I, I knew I could get another job. I knew I could make more money. I know I could go to a new area Um, And then eventually I went to the tech. um, I went back to what I went to school for and I went to like program and I've worked for all these different Fortune 500 companies. So I've gone from literally sleeping in the subway to making a very, very, very strong income. And in regards to stress levels, the funny thing is the most happiest I've ever been was the year that I was doing poetry full time. And that was probably when I was making the least amount of money. So when I so now that I'm at a point where I, I do have, you know, a very strong, consistent income from all the products that I work on. 
personally, nothing really, I've never been a materialistic person. So it came to a point, like I was saying before, I, I started to realize that I need to focus on the things that I wanted to do, that I was passionate about, because I came to realize that the money was always going to be there. And I would always be able to fund the things that I wanted to do. So I needed to start focusing on other things that were going to make me happy. And that's one of the reasons I decided to do this podcast. And I, my mom's been telling me since I was in middle school, high school, that I should write because that's always been my passion. And I wrote a book in 2006, the year that I was doing the poetry full time. And then I literally stopped writing any book for the next 14 years until I wrote Twisted Fairy Tales. And when I told my mom, you know what? I've come to a point where money isn't everything. I have it. I've experienced it. I've traveled the world. I've lived in the best areas. I've hung out with all these different celebrities. And be honest with you, the thing that's making me the most happiest is when I, you know, lock myself in my office, pull out my computer and literally just go into my world and just write. And that's when I kind of, I, I realized COVID to me was actually a blessing in disguise because it finally made me become more introspective and say, you know what? At this time, you're stuck in your house. You can't really go anywhere. You're by yourself in this apartment in Brooklyn. You might want to try to figure out what you need to do to be happy for yourself because you can make all the money in the world. If you can't leave your house, what's all this money doing? What you get a, another streaming account? You can only get so many of them. <laughs> I mean, you, you could buy your car. You're not going anywhere. There was so COVID actually really helped me realize. You know what? Money really isn't that important if you can't do anything with it, or if you're not happy doing what you, with, you know, what you wanted. Right. Wanted. Right. No, I, you're, you're you're absolutely right. You know, I, yeah, and I, I found some similar uh, similar parts to uh, to COVID. You know, in that. I was able to see family, you know, um, and, you know, I was able to kind of like take that step back, uh, really begin to realize like what's, what's important, you know, but yeah, man, I, I really thank you for this interview. Thank you so much, brother. It is so great to see you. So great to see you, man. No, it definitely I was. You, I hope I get and to see I you again. I just have but one question. It's, and, and I just have one more question. This is kind of like my, my signature that I want to ask everyone that comes on the show. Everyone looks at all the good things, all the positive, but everyone reaches a point in their career where they literally start to second guess, is this what I really should be doing? What part in your life would you say was kind of one of your darkest moments in your journey where you really had to become introspective and say, you know what, if I want to get to where I want to be, I'm going to have to push through this or I'm going to have to quit and do something else. How did you cope and overcome with that? Oh, man. Uh, allowing myself to understand what tears actually were, you know, um, I think was a big uh a big part of pushing through, um, you know, because, you know, 
I, I, you know, I just have this thing where, you know, for me at least, you know, life is, it's full of joy and life is full of a lot of pain. Uh, the, the joy is, is easy to, to, to miss because you're in it like a fish in water, right? Uh, the pain is very, uh, uh, tangible and palpable and you can't miss it at all because when you're in pain, you, you really know it. Um, and the, you know, the, I think to, to answer that, you know, there, there became a point where it's almost like a, you know, it's almost scary, you know, but it's like, you know, when you've been doing this for as long as I've been doing it, you're like, there's not really much else I can do, right? Like, this is what I do. So it's like, either I'm going to do this to the fullest, you know, or die, right? Like, those are your two options, (laughs) right? You're either going to do this to to the absolute fullest that you can do it, or, you know, hang it up. Time to go. You know, so so um, you know there was no like fallback plan. You know, um, and you know, for better or worse, it's like you have to start making it. You know, and I think you know, for an artist, you have to really ask for what you want. You know, I think a lot of the times as artists, we, you know, we're like, we, we shortchange ourselves. And I, and and I don't even just say to ask for what you want, but like, ask for what you need. You know, if there's a gig and you need $5,000 from that gig, then say, I need $5,000 from that gig and don't feel, and don't feel (laughs) like that's a crazy thing to ask for. You know, so, so, you know, for me, I, you know, like pre COVID, you know, I didn't even, you know, I would go out and do these workshops, uh, you know, around the country and, and I was like, oh, wow. You mean I can make money doing this and this is what I do. Like I can synthesize. So I also think that it's about like more windows and doors will open that you didn't even know were there before. Like you might think you're in a room that doesn't even have any doors, you know, but if you really start looking, there's a door somewhere, you know what I mean? And, and and there's probably a door where you didn't think there was a door and that will open up and, and, and then your skills evolve right you like you evolve right so it's like i i'm a beatboxer right like everybody says oh he's a beatboxer but i use beatboxing in the classroom right i was able to pioneer using beatboxing as a form of speech therapy i use beatboxing to teach speech language pathologists how to use this inside of their practice if you would have asked me in 2005 if that's what I would be doing with beatboxing, if that's what I would be pioneering with beatboxing, there's no way that I could have told you that. 
because the door had not opened up to say, hey, do you want to use beatboxing inside of a classroom with students who were blind and have different abilities? And that that was going to open up this new space within a whole field, right, Um, of how we look at language. Would I have been able to have said that when I was studying uh, Shakespeare out in Sedona with Anthony Mackey? Never. I would have never thought that, you know, back then as a young, you know, 20-year-old kid, you know, that that was going to be uh, uh, an option of a doorway, you know? So I think it's, you know, when you, when you find myself in that time, in that space where it's like, this is, you know, terrifying because, you know, you, you don't know what, you know, you know, where is the next, you know, where's, where's the next moment? Where's the next way that you're going to uh, find a door that is going to help you, um, you know, support your family, uh, have a family, uh, you know, you know, buy a house or whatever it is that you're trying to, uh, to do. Um, I think it's just about, you know, having that faith in yourself that it's, it's going to happen uh, when you, as your work's going to pay off. And I think most importantly, uh, through all of this, uh, don't panic. Because when you panic, you send a, uh, an energy out into the universe, uh, a reverberation that typically makes things worse. And then it allows, and then you, you're not able to make decisions that are actually going to be able to benefit you, you know, or, 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 or actually heal the situation. But if you take a step back, and breathe and say, okay, I accept this. I accept this. This is what is right now. This is what I want it to be, right? In terms of this crisis that I'm having, right? This is right now. Let your tears out. Let your flip, but don't panic. Because if you panic, you, you kind of set forth an avalanche, right, of, of, of negative vibrations, and the negative space kind of starts to take you over and then you start to sink. Where if you, if you, can, if you can say, okay, I'm right here right now, it's not where I wanna be, but this is what it is right now, I will rise above this. That's kind of the way I get through and, and that's how I'm beginning to get through now, you know? Thank you. Thank yeah, you, Chesney, for, for, right. for sharing. Yeah, brother. Uh, for, for definitely being here, for being in my life. You too, brother. Uh, you, you, you already know I'm right. always here for. I always got your back no matter what. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Uh, thank, thank you for, for joining me for this episode of In the Woods. Uh, be sure to sign up to our email list over at moreinthewoods.com so that you don't miss our next episode. And follow follow us at William Moore, the author. And I'm James Woods. Some people know me as William Moore. 
Thank you for listening.